Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. from the files of the nation's unsolved crimes, the story of a murder of rare delicacy and wondrous ease that was called suicide. Yes, suicide, the police call it. Yet the murderer walks among us free. I might unknowingly have passed him on the street today. He could even have been sitting next to you on a train or in a cafe, hiding his evil behind a mask. The calm and often smiling mask of the unsuspected. Don't, please! Ah! You're in a great deal of danger. You've got to get out of this house. Your life won't be worth much if Victor finds out what Althea's been telling me. You better get out, Althea. <laughs> Come sit beside me, Stephen. I'm lonely. Terribly lonely. Do you think you could manage to be a little less attractive to my wife? Try being nasty. I have. Try harder. Matilda, you didn't see anything. You couldn't have. Steve isn't there. No, I saw him! Stop this insane hysteria. I tell you, you didn't see him. You only imagined you did. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Unsuspected, from 1947. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release day was October 3rd, 1947. The running time, 103 minutes, and it was in black and white. The box office actually took in $2 million. That was the 75th ranked movie of 1947. This is based on a Variety article that came out in early 1948. Leonard Malden in his classic movie guide gives it two and a half out of four stars. Now, I first discovered the film on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, years ago. And then once Warner Brothers began producing their DVDs on demand, DVD-Rs, they did this for classic films, I decided to pick this up. And I'm a huge film noir fan, so along with the works of Claude Rains, and so this was a no-brainer for me. Let's get into the main cast. You, of course, have Claude Rains, who plays Victor Grandison. Now, to me, Rains is one of the most underrated actors of the early era of film. Now, he gained initial stardom as Dr. Jack Griffin in the universal horror classic The Invisible Man in 1933. Though, really, it was just his voice that garnered stardom, as you only saw Rains' face only at the end of the film. Not to give anything away. 
Now, two of his most well-known roles were, of course, as Renault in the Casablanca and Alexander Sebastian in Hitchcock's Notorious. Other memorable films for Reigns included The Prince and the Pauper, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Four Daughters, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Seahawk, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, The Wolfman, now Voyager, and The Phantom of the Opera in 1943. The rest of the cast is terrific as well, with Joan Caulfield, Andre Totter, who we covered in the Lady in the Lake episode, Constance Bennett, and Ted North. The director of the film, Michael Curtiz, now he's considered one of the top directors of his era, and Curtiz started directing silent films in his native country of Hungary in the early 1910s. He eventually moved to Hollywood in the late 1920s, though his career didn't take off until the mid-30s. He did direct the film we covered, which was a precursor to The Thin Man, The Kennel Murder Case with William Powell. But his big break was in 1935, with the swashbuckler adventure film Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. Other well-known Curtiz films prior to The Unsuspected, Kid Galahad with Edward G. Robinson and Betty Davis, which we'll be covering in a few months, The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn again, Four Daughters, Angels with Dirty Faces with James Cagney, which we also will be covering soon, The Seahawk, Yankee Doodle Dandy with James Cagney, Casablanca, Mildred Pierce, and Life with Father. Alright, let's get into the film. So it begins with a bang as we see a shadowy figure walking slowly throughout a very nice house, likely a mansion. The man, we can assume it's a man at this point, is in a fedora and an overcoat. The whole pacing and the lighting is very film noir, meaning the use of shadows and the eerie score is all part of this scene. The man enters a room where a woman is typing at a desk. We discover later it's the secretary of the state. She receives a phone call from Alethea Keane, played by Audrey Totter. As they are talking, the secretary named Rosalind notices the man in the doorway and she screams. The man kills her, though we never see it, and hangs up the phone. Alethea doesn't seem to be super worried about being disconnected and heads to another nightclub. In the meantime, we cut back to the house and we see the reflection of the face who killed Rosalind. He's arranged the scene to look like Rosalind hanged herself and we see her body hanging in the shadows as he leaves the house. We find out that Rosalind was a secretary to Victor Grandison, played by Claude Rains, who is a popular radio host specializing in true crime shows. Now, as I've said in the past, and you probably already realize it, if you're a fan of damn good movie memories, you know that I'm a huge fan of old-time radio shows from the 1930s through the early 1950s. Listening to so many of these types of programs at a young age really kind of shows, especially when it comes to how I put together each episode of the podcast. In any case, this film is very cool to watch, and you get to see on film how old-time radio shows were broadcast back then with the sound effects and the orchestra. In one of the few clips I could find from The Unsuspected, we hear Victor performing during his radio program. To the voice of his own conscience. A voice that tells him over and over that the hunter has become the hunted. That there's no escape for one who has committed murder. They say that drowning men relive their lives in seconds. The guilty, too, relive their crimes a thousand times a day. At every unexpected sound, at every glance that turns their way, and at a thousand fears that have no form. The guilty must go on and on, hiding his evil behind a mask, the calm and often smiling mask of the unsuspected. 
During Victor's broadcast, we hear different characters from the film listening intently to their radios, all in different places. And yes, this was a few years before television became commonplace. Radio was the main form of home and portable entertainment. We find out that Althea is the niece of Victor, and she's throwing a surprise party for him at his estate. A mysterious man named Stephen Howard, played by Ted North, arrives at the party unannounced. This is possibly a MacGuffin. Before we're even introduced to Stephen, we only see the back of him, wearing the same style fedora and overcoat as the murderer of Rosalind. Althea greets Stephen as he says he knows Victor. She doesn't think much of it and makes herself another drink and mingles, while her husband Oliver gets drunker and drunker, much to her chagrin. Althea goes back to give Stephen a drink and finds him admiring a painting. The painting is of a woman named Matilda Frazier. Matilda has been placed under the care or award of Victor. However, she was killed during an accident at sea where a freighter caught fire. She was never found and presumed dead. We find out that Oliver was engaged to Matilda before her death. And obviously, before he ended up marrying Althea. In turn, Althea didn't think much of Matilda and is shocked to find out that Stephen was married to her. Supposedly, days before Oliver planned to marry Matilda, Althea married Oliver and stole him away. After this revelation, Victor arrives home and he is given his surprise party. He acts like a good sport, but isn't thrilled with having a party thrown for him so soon after the suicide of his secretary. This is what they're calling it. Once the party clears out, one of Victor's friends and associates named Richard Donovan, played by Fred Clark, who is a homicide detective, stays to give Victor a few fresh cases that he has. Victor uses real-life cases as his inspiration for his program. As Victor and Donovan attempt to go over the cases, Stephen makes his appearance and introduces himself to Victor as Matilda's husband. We find out he was married to her three days before the boating accident. Now at first, Victor believes Stephen arrived due to trying to inherit Matilda's sizable fortune. However, Stephen doesn't want any of her money. What he does want is the painting of her. Victor does agree to this and asks Stephen to stay the evening and discuss things further. And even though Victor agrees, he's definitely suspicious of Stephen. The next day we cut to an airport and a flight heading to Rio de Janeiro. We see a woman getting on the plane. When the camera pans to a window seat, we discover this woman is the same as in the painting. It's Matilda. We go back to Victor's estate, where he's with his producer, Jane, played by Constance Bennett, and he's writing and rehearsing the latest script. He does this by recording to blank vinyl. He can then play back and hear what works and what doesn't work before he performs live that night. So yes, all of these radio programs were done live back in the day. This was before the advent and cost-effectiveness of recording to tape. You could actually record to vinyl if you had the means with a record cutter. And Victor, being a wealthy performer, definitely had the means. Victor asked Donovan to do some digging on Stephen. Stephen is from a wealthy background as his father is an oil tycoon. So Victor's initial theory that Stephen wants a payday is likely incorrect. He served in the army for World War II and was wounded twice. And when he was discharged, he met Matilda. His story checks out according to Donovan. But still, Victor has his doubts. As Donovan leaves, Victor receives a telegram, which says that Matilda is alive and she's arriving back in town the next day. He shares this news with Althea and Stephen, and Stephen is stunned that Althea isn't thrilled as she never liked Matilda to begin with, and she's also trying to put the moves on Stephen. Looks like the flame is gone for Oliver. Matilda arrives at the airport and is hounded by reporters. She nervously and briefly gives an account of how she was rescued and why she couldn't send word sooner. 
She was stranded at sea, after all. Stephen picks up Matilda and rescues her from the reporters. Matilda wonders why Victor didn't pick her up, and Stephen says that he wanted to avoid the publicity. And then comes the bombshell. Matilda thinks that Stephen is just Victor's driver. She has no clue who he is, let alone that they were married. Stephen takes Matilda to the same bar where they met, and she has absolutely no recollection of meeting Stephen, let alone being married. Stephen thinks that she might have amnesia from the shock and exposure of the boat accident. Matilda is completely indignant and thinks that the marriage is a fraud. Stephen pleads his case and shows her the marriage certificate, but Matilda doesn't believe she's married and doesn't want to be married to him. Stephen then takes her to the Justice of the Peace where they were married. The judge and his assistant both remember Matilda. Stephen says that the judge will assist them for an annulment in a few days if she chooses to go that route. And to further complicate things in the plot, a man named Mr. Press, played by Jack Lambert, visits Victor and threatens to kill him for using his story on Victor's program. Press had come to Victor before and confessed to murder. Victor at the time was recording the entire conversation on a hidden microphone and had a vinyl pressing of the discussion. Victor gets a sadistic sort of satisfaction knowing that he has this man's life at his fingertips. So Press threatens Victor but leaves the estate just the same. Gotta stop it, Mr. Grandison. I can't take any more. I wouldn't entertain any awkward ideas about hastening my departure from the scheme of things if I were you, Press. You gotta leave me alone. Now, will you please stop trying to convince yourself that you have enough courage to murder me? Well, give me that ridiculous weapon. Give it to me, I say, before I lose my temper. Thing I detest. I can't sleep, I can't eat. Not since that broadcast. When you called me the unsuspected. How do you think I felt? Well, if I were in your shoes, I should feel extremely uncomfortable. Now, for the good of your soul, I want you to hear something. Come along with me. Now, for many years now, I've been recording my programs before broadcasting. Just for practice purposes. So that my listeners will have the benefit of a bit full, rich tone. Now, occasionally, this device has other uses, one of which I now commend to your attention. I swear, Mr. Grandison, I didn't mean to kill her. I was only threatening her when she screamed. But you were overzealous, Press. Why didn't you tell the police? I didn't dare. Why are you confessing to me? Because I... I would get that. For all those years. I made it. On the occasion of your first visit, the microphone was hidden as you told me your story. So it turned out to be one of my best programs. Which I'm probably grateful. I'm very untidy of you. It's so impetuous. You don't really imagine that I'd be foolish enough to let you destroy the only copy, do you? There are others. And if anything ever happens to me, the police will be listening to one of them. Why don't you leave me alone? I intend to. However, for my material, I had to call on many different kinds of people at many different times. What is it you want from me? Nothing, actually. My interest in you is largely clinical. I am wondering, though, how long it will take the police to arrive at the same conclusions that led me to you. I could help them. I may have to. I could kill you. What good would that do? Yeah. And no more of that silly business. Goodbye. And don't come here again. I'll call you if I need you. You know, Chris, I rather enjoy playing God. Stephen and Matilda arrive home, but Matilda isn't ready to talk to everyone quite yet and she sneaks around back to her old room, where she finds that Alethea has moved in, 
and made her room her own. This leads to a contentious reunion where we find the dislike of Althea towards Matilda more prominent. Matilda decides that she wants her room back and tells Althea to move her belongings out. Who is it? morning, while Stephen is gone, Victor goes snooping in Stephen's jacket and finds a picture of Rosalind in his wallet. Hmm. We then cut to downtown where Stephen meets with Jane and we discover that she's been working with Stephen all along to get some inside information about Victor. Neither one of them believe that Rosalind killed herself. Stephen takes their evidence, including a note from Rosalind a day prior, which showed her in good spirits. They take this to the police. Donovan visits Victor that night to show how the suicide was likely staged. Now, the viewer knows how the murder of Rosalind was committed, because we saw it in the beginning of the film. But the characters, of course, do not know any of this. Alright, there's about an hour left, and many things need to be cleared up. Like, who killed Rosalind? And how is Steven connected to Rosalind? And where does Matilda stand in all this? And then, of course, there's Althea. And Oliver, and Jane, and Mr. Press, not to mention the head of everything, Victor. 
It's a plot that keeps attention in suspense the entire time, and it has a fabulous ending. And I highly recommend it, of course. Plus, Claude Rains is one of the most underrated actors of his era, as I said. All right, let's get into some fun facts. The film is based on a novel written by Charlotte Armstrong. However, it originally started as a serial in the Saturday Evening Post, which ran for almost two months in 1945. The screenplay was co-written by Randall McDougall and Bess Meredith. Meredith was married to director Michael Curtiz. Now, various other actors were considered for roles. Humphrey Bogart was thought to be up for the role of Victor. Dana Andrews was cast for the role of Stephen Howard, but was not happy with the size of the role once filming began and left the film after two weeks. Because of Andrews, Virginia Mayo, who was originally going to be part of the film, she left and then was replaced with Joan Caulfield. Eve Arden was said to have been cast in the leading role at the time, but obviously that never panned out. It was thought that her role would have been Jane, which went to Constance Bennett. The radio station call letters in the film, WMCB, were created by inserting Michael Curtiz's initials into those of Warner Brothers. Composer Max Steiner recycled one of his themes from the Maltese Falcon in the soundtrack. Alright, again, this might be a tough one for you to find. If you have Turner Classic Movies, I, of course they do play it. Uh, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. I, of course, own it because that's the best way for me to always have things at my disposal and then I'm not reliant on streaming services. But it's up to you. If you can find it, it's great. I, I really think this is a, a good film to check out and this is why I like doing the podcast because I guarantee most people have not seen this film and I think you'll definitely enjoy it. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com. <laughs>